Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was already with God in the beginning. Everything came into existence through Him. Not one thing that exists was made without Him. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, God's Word Translation. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. We're excited to be with you as today we begin a new series on Anchored by Truth. So to announce the series and tell us why we're doing it, we have R.D. Fierro back in the studio. R.D. is an author and the founder of Crystal Sea Books. R.D., you've entitled this series, Why Am I Here? I think that's a question many people have asked at one time or another. And for Christians, the answer may be pretty straightforward. But my guess is there's more to the question that you want to look into. Exactly. But before we get too far along in our discussion today, I would like to say a word of greeting and thanks to everyone who is joining us here today. We know that Anchored by Truth is not the typical kind of program that's heard on many radio stations. Our singular focus here is to help people understand that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. And we do so in the hope that if people will come to realize that the Bible is the Word of God, that they will then begin to give the Bible a central place in their lives. I don't think it's too strong a statement to say that the world we see around us and our own country is in a mess. So I think it's fair to ask how it got that way. And while simple answers always carry some danger, it is undeniable that the basic stability of our way of life has declined as biblical illiteracy has grown. And we are well aware at Anchored by Truth of the admonition that statistics professors always give their new students, that correlations is not causation. But it's also true that examining correlations can often point you to causation. Yes. And we try to avoid painting with too broad a brush, but you simply cannot avoid the basic conclusion that as the Bible has faded in its role in the daily life of people, not just in America, but in a great many of the Western and democratic nations, the cultures and societies of those countries have seen a great many, many undesirable social developments. And a simple example that is often given is that when the Bible was taught in schools, there were no mass shootings in schools. And there was a lot less substance abuse when we paid far more attention to our spiritual condition. And one of the things that a great many surveys of contemporary lifestyles has revealed is that recent generations have experienced greater material prosperity than their parents or their grandparents or great-grandparents And yet those recent generations report being far less happy, far more miserable, and far less satisfied with their lives. In other words, 
our material prosperity had not led to increased levels of happiness or satisfaction, which is directly counterintuitive to our expectations. Without a doubt, the steady drumbeat of our world, especially in the mass media, is that if we just get our dream home, the dream car, the dream career, the dream mate, our lives will be happy and fulfilled. But the reality that has emerged in recent decades has been far different. We have better and more comfortable homes, cars that can do things prior generations couldn't have conceived of, and a greater choice in careers than any group in world history. But it hasn't produced contentment or cheerfulness. Is that one of the reasons you wanted to undertake this series on Why Am I Here? Absolutely. Far too many people these days see little or no meaning in their life, and they are now trying to draw the meaning for their life out of causes and purposes that are never going to satisfy them. The causes and purposes to which they turn to find meaning only wind up letting them down. And that happens at all levels of the economic and social spectrum. People better off economically are in no better shape when it comes to satisfaction with their lives than people who are less well-off, the poor people. And an inability to find meaning in their life is particularly problematic for some of the youngest among us. But, as we often say on Anchored by Truth, the good news is that it doesn't have to be that way. In the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus said, quote, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly, unquote. That's the New King James Version. So obviously, Jesus' intention for his followers is for them to have full and abundant lives. And a person with that kind of full and abundant life might ask the question, why am I here? But they're not doing so out of despair or desperation the way another person might. Yes. I mean, there is no problem whatsoever with us asking, why are we here? Uh, There probably aren't very many people who haven't wondered that at some point in their life. And maybe even most of us wonder that from time to time. But the starting point for deriving your answer is going to make all the difference in the world. So what should the starting point be? The starting point must be to acknowledge the reality that we point to so often on Anchored by Truth. That we live in a universe created by a loving God but that that creation was marred when our first parents, Adam and Eve, brought sin into a created order that God had pronounced very good. So the created order, which had been made without sin or death, then became a fallen creation. And as Paul says in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 22, For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. The fallen nature of creation is a very important point for us to understand as we ponder our place in that created order, as we wonder why people are here. People who ponder why they are here without acknowledging the existence of God and the fallen nature of creation are always going to wind up with an unsatisfactory answer. It's like trying to navigate a pathway, but you don't have any idea whether that pathway consists of a dirt road, a paved road, whether it's a trail that goes through a swamp, or whether it's a road that's going to cross the Grand Canyon. You have to know the nature of the road that you're on in order to be able to navigate it successfully. So to help be sure about the fundamental starting point, not long ago we completed a series that we entitled Truth and Proof. 
That is a 10-episode discussion of four critical facts that frame reality. First, absolute truth exists and cannot be reasonably denied. Second, that one absolute truth is there is a necessary personal being, a creator God, that is responsible for everything that exists. Third, the existence of that necessary personal being can be discerned through logic, reason, and evidence, but we can only know a limited amount about his attributes by what is termed general revelation. We need a special revelation to go further. The fourth point is that special revelation exists in the Bible, which can be shown to be a book that corresponds to the physical creation and human history, but also possesses a supernatural point of origin. Which means that if we want to develop an answer to the question of why we are here that will fully satisfy us, we have to start with a firm grounding in the nature of reality, and we have to be prepared, frankly, to study the Bible. Now, I would hasten to add that we must always approach these kinds of subjects in an age and audience appropriate way. A distressed teenager does not need to master the nuances of the Levitical Code or probe the mysteries of Revelation to get some comfort about where they are in life and where they are going. The same thing is true for people who are recent converts or people who are still struggling with their need for a Savior. More often than not, people who are dealing with life crises or struggles just need to know that God loves them and has a plan for their life, which includes trust and dependence on Him. But the statement, God loves you, is meaningless if you don't believe that God exists. So we must always be mindful that when we comfort people who have to address all their needs, and one of those needs may be a reasoned assurance that the God of the Bible isn't just a mythological grandfather or a gauzy kind of spirit drifting about the universe. While many people won't initially think about it in those terms, unless God is sovereign over the affairs of humanity and the physical conditions of the universe, there ultimately would be little reason to seek him out for help. Right. So to begin our answer to the question of why we are here, it's important to know what our starting point is. And as we have been discussing, our starting point has to be that there is a God who is the creator of everything that exists. Because if we don't start there, then we would be starting our understanding of our role in this life at a fallacious starting point. In effect, we would be trying to base the discovery of our own purpose in life on a lie. That would be like trying to get from Virginia to California, but facing east instead of west. Understanding that we live in a universe created by a supreme being is absolutely key to understanding why we are here. And that thought takes us straight to our opening scripture from the Gospel of John. In the opening of his Gospel, John is clearly opening his book about the life and ministry of Jesus by making a reference to the first verses of Genesis. The first verse of the first book of the Bible says, quote, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Unquote. John says, quote, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Unquote. That's the way the New International Version phrases John chapter 1, verse 1. We heard the God's Word translation in our opening. The God's Word version says, quote, In the beginning, the Word already existed, unquote. So what John is saying, quite clearly, is that not only are the earth and heavens created objects, 
but also that Jesus was involved in their creation. Right. John starts his gospel where we must begin our own search for a true answer to the question of why we are here. John starts by reminding his readers that God created the heavens and the earth, but he quickly proceeds to the point that he is going to emphasize throughout his gospel that Jesus was not only fully human, but Jesus was also fully divine. Now, in the Incarnation, the second person of the Trinity adopted a human nature in addition to his divine nature. He adopted a second nature in order to fulfill a divine commission that would save a group of people who were, these are the words of Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, chosen before the foundation of the world. You know, it's been said that the Gospel of Matthew was written to show that Jesus was the son of David and Abraham and that the Gospel of Luke was written to show that Jesus was the Son of Man, and that the Gospel of John was written to show that Jesus was the Son of God. So, knowing all of that is a necessary predicate to us being able to discover, to truly discover, why we are here. I think that a lot of people would find some of that confusing, or at least frustrating. I wouldn't want to oversimplify the issue, but many people who might ask the question, why am I here, probably just want to know that their lives have meaning. Do you think it is really necessary for them to begin thinking about the nature of reality, the existence of God, or what the Bible says in order to get an answer? Well, to get an answer, maybe not. But to get an answer that will sustain them in times of trial, yes. Now, this does not mean that if we're trying to help someone who is experiencing a time of depression or a crisis, that you want to get into all the concepts that we're going to be discussing during this series. But one of the reasons that people enter into seasons in their lives where they begin to even wonder why they're alive is because their worldview is either not based on a relationship with Jesus or they have not understood the true love that Jesus has for each of his children. Our goal on Anchored by Truth is to help people to begin to develop their own anchor to truth, an anchor that will be strong enough to enable them to withstand the storms and gales that inevitably arise during this life. In other words, to continue the metaphor, we have to make sure that we are firmly anchored before the storm arrives. And that's why we're doing this series to help people to start to think about the question of why we're all here before they get a health scare or a financial or family shock or encounter another event of the kind that rocks our world. Yes. In the midst of the storm, such as the one that's described in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, verses 35 through 41, at that point, when they're in the middle of the storm, Jesus did not go on an extended theological discourse with his disciples. Jesus provided his disciples with what they needed most at that moment, safety from the storm. In verse 39, Jesus told the storm to be still. And various translations say that Jesus told the sea to either be quiet, silent, or at peace, and then followed by be still. Which is why you will often hear ministers or counselors say Jesus will either calm the storm or his child. Yes, Well, the part where Jesus calmed the storm, that's the part of the story everybody focuses on. But Jesus went on to say to his disciples in verse 40, and I'm quoting, Why are you so afraid? 
Do you still have no faith? Close quote. In effect, Jesus was saying to his disciples, If you had been paying attention, there would have been no reason for your fear. At that point in Jesus' ministry, the disciples had already seen Jesus perform a large number of miracles of healing. Including healing the paralytic who was lowered through the roof of a house by four of the paralytic's friends. The incident is recorded in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2. When Jesus healed the paralytic, he initially said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But the man wasn't healed at that point, and there were some in the crowd who thought Jesus was guilty of blasphemy because it was well understood among the Jews that only God had the authority to forgive sins. So, verses 8 through 12 read, quote, Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Unquote. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Unquote. He got up, took his mat, walked out in full view of them. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Right. So by the time the storm in Mark chapter 4 occurs, the disciples already knew, or they should have known, that they were riding in the boat with God incarnate. Jesus had already claimed to have the prerogatives that only God possesses. And Jesus had proven his claim to being God by providing instant healing to a paralyzed man. Well, if you're riding in the boat with God incarnate, even though you may not understand all that that means, you should certainly know enough to know that as long as God incarnate is in there in the boat with you, you can turn to him for help. What you're saying is that the disciples might have had needed to wake Jesus to deal with the storm, but there was no need for them to fear. Exactly. The disciples already had evidence of who Jesus really was. Now, some of the people who had seen Jesus perform a miraculous healing may not have known at that point that Jesus was God in the flesh, but the disciples should have had a pretty good idea. But they didn't, and that's why Jesus said to them, Don't you have any faith yet? Well, the point of all this is that when we come to those times and places in our lives, when we start wondering why we are here, quite possibly because we've just entered a storm of our own, it's okay at that point to just turn to Jesus and ask Him to bring us peace. And Jesus certainly has a record of providing the peace we're seeking. But on a longer-term basis, we can't or shouldn't just be content to remain in our ignorance of who Jesus really is. We all have to grow in our faith. So the first major point of being able to provide an intelligent, satisfactory answer to the question, why am I here, is to recognize that we exist in a universe that was created by an almighty God. Because if we don't recognize that, we won't have a firm anchor from which to begin to understand where we fit in the created order. But we must also recognize that the created order does not possess the character with which it was first established. When Adam and Eve ushered sin into the cosmos, the cosmos itself was affected. And while we might greatly object to that fact, we still have to deal with it. Yep. We can have no reasonable idea of what our world and cosmos would have looked like if Eve had simply walked away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as she had been instructed. 
Certainly, the answer to the question that we're dealing with today would be vastly different if creation had never fallen. But all that is moot. To know why we are here in this, a fallen cosmos, we have to recognize that the fall did occur. Now, the good news is that immediately after the fall, God began a plan to redeem a people for himself from the consequences of the fall. We are not, and we cannot be, immune to all of the effects of the fall of creation. But God immediately began a plan of redemption and salvation that one day will deliver us from all of those effects. And that plan, from all eternity, from time immemorial, is centered around Jesus. So the second point that we need to recognize as we probe for our answer to the question of why we are here is the role that Jesus played and continues to play in the now fallen creation. And we have to recognize how those of us who live in this fallen creation are related to Jesus. As our opening scripture plainly stated, Jesus, called the word in that verse from John, Jesus existed before the beginning. Which literally means that Jesus existed before time as we know it, existed. John said, in the beginning the word already existed. A slightly different way of saying this is that Jesus in his divine nature, as the second person of the Trinity, created time. Notice that the Apostle John began his gospel expressly with the declaration that Jesus was God. John said, quote, The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Unquote. Why was John so emphatic about that declaration? Well, of course, John did not write his gospel in English. He wrote his gospel in Greek, and in Greek, the word that John used that is translated as word is the Greek word logos. It's the same word from which we get our English word logic. The New Geneva Study Bible explains John's use of the term logos in this way. I'm quoting, The term word designates God the Son with respect to his deity. Jesus and Christ refer to his incarnation and saving work. In Greek philosophy, the logos was reason or logic as an abstract force that brought harmony and order to the universe. But in John's writings, such qualities of the Logos are gathered in the person of Christ. John wanted his readers to start their education about Jesus, their knowledge about Jesus, at the very beginning of creation. In fact, he wanted to start their education about Jesus before the beginning. John is, in effect, telling his readers that understanding Jesus' nature and role in creation is necessary for them to understand Jesus' life. And John would say the same to us. If we want to understand our role in the created order, why we are here, we must know who Jesus is, and we must know how we are related to Jesus. You know, I don't think most people who start out asking the question, why am I here, probably move very quickly to thinking about their relationship with Jesus. Well, they may not, but they probably should. And of course, that's the reason we're doing this series. Look, I'm not naive. I'm well aware of what's going on in the culture, in this country, and all around the world. We live in a society that is becoming increasingly secular. And if increasing secularization was producing better lives, maybe we could all pretend that the questions about how we are related to Jesus don't matter. But as we said when we started this episode, there are very few people, if any, who claim that our society is improving in the ways that people value most. 
Our society is becoming more dangerous, our institutions are less compassionate, and frankly, our communal government is less effective every day. And part of the reason, and I believe the reason, that all this is happening is because we, as a society, have exchanged lives that are based on transcendent truths for lives that are completely focused around and enamored with temporary substitutes. But it doesn't have to be that way. God and His truth hasn't gone anywhere, and it isn't going anywhere. And Jesus stands ready to bring about revival and reformation, not just to the lives of His children, but to our land. That's the promise we have in Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. Quote, if my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves, pray, search for me, and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear their prayer from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal their country, unquote. So that verse actually points out that the more people asking the question, why am I here, could be a very good thing. Nothing will cause someone to take an inventory of their life like beginning to wonder why they were put on the earth in the first place. So all this reinforces the first two points that we have been making about finding a true and sustaining answer to the question of why we are here. You know, you don't think about it very often, but if Jesus were, as is sometimes alleged, just a famous philosopher from the past, there really wouldn't be any reason to have a relationship with him. People might study the ideas of past religious or philosophical figures, but they are not going to have an interest in establishing a relationship with that person. I mean, how could they? The person is dead. But Jesus is not. Jesus is alive at the right hand of the Father. So we can have a relationship with him, and we should. Exactly. So before we close for today, this points to a subject that we're going to take up in future episodes of this Why Am I Here series, and that is the fact that a person's answer to the question of why they are here is going to vary, sometimes greatly, depending on whether or not they are already a Christian, and if they are already a Christian, whether or not they're a relatively young and immature believer, or whether they've been walking with Christ for a while and have become a mature believer. The basic answer to the question of why we are here is going to be the same for all people. And it's a pretty simple one, because God made us in His image. But that answer, while true, is not what most people are seeking when they ask the question. And we want to give people tools and suggestions for how they can go about developing a true and sustainable answer to that question, why am I here? You know, it's easy to be casual or flippant about a teenager who's wondering if their life has any meaning or an adult who's having a midlife crisis. But that's not what God wants of us. Throughout his ministry, Jesus showed that he wanted to meet the needs of his children and he was willing to meet those needs wherever they were. So next time, we're going to continue to probe how we can develop a truly satisfying answer to the question of why we are all here. Many people asking that question undoubtedly are doing so because they want to be sure their life has meaning. For Christians, it's obvious that our lives have meaning because God, the creator of everything, not only made us in his image, but he also sent his only son to die for us. This sounds like a time to go to God in prayer. Today, let's listen to a prayer for our first responders, men and women who are willing to serve others even if it means placing themselves at risk. We should be grateful to them 
and to the God who has placed them in our midst. A prayer for first responders. Almighty, gracious, and heavenly Father, we come to you because you are a great God and a merciful God. Lord, we seek your face and your favor for our brothers and sisters who today selflessly perform jobs where they place the health and safety of others above their own. We are so grateful, Lord, that in our community and in every community in our nation, there are brave men and women willing to serve as police officers, firefighters, paramedics, and other first responders. We thank you for each and every one of them, and we pray that you would be their constant companion and guard. Lord, we know that they have all accepted the call to serve a cause greater than themselves. We pray everything we do and they do would serve to bring glory and honor to your name. We thank you that you have given us a part in your great work. All this we ask in the name of your precious Son and our Lord, Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalcbooks.com, where... We're not perfect, but our boss is.